and good morning. Oh, I get it mixed up. See our other church service in the afternoon, and we always say good morning, and then, uh, so here I say good afternoon. It's all backwards. Well, good morning, Reach Montreal Church. Um, so happy to be here, even though I know these circumstances are hard. Thank you for that real talk, John, and uh, just welcoming us in and walking through us, walking with us through this time. And I'm happy to be part of this family. So it's it's really good to practice our faith together. This is authentic Christianity. Um, and that's what this whole series is about in Lamentations. It's about authentic Christianity. And John asked me, what's the message today about? It's about regret. And you know, it would be real funny if we said, we don't need that message here. We're Christians. We have no regrets. You know, but that's not true. We have regrets. We, even though we walk with Christ, we we deal with guilt and we deal with shame and we have regrets. And that's what authentic faith is about. And uh, so, yeah, it's my privilege to continue through Lamentations with you. We're looking at Lamentations chapter 5 today, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Um, and then next week, we're continuing the series for two more weeks, but we're going to be looking at joy and we're going to be looking at love. So this is actually our last passage in Lamentations. And then I think we're going to be going into John a little bit before we resume our overall series in Mark, which is going to be really great to get back to that. So, uh, yeah, we all have regrets. Honestly, we do. We have disappointments. We have things that we wish didn't happen. We, there are things that we've done that we wish we didn't do. This is a little bit about regrets. And these are a normal part of the human experience. And so that's why we address them on Sundays, and that's why we address them in our faith, is it's a normal part of our human experience to have regret and deal with guilt and deal with shame. Um, like I said, this is part of our authentic Christianity and not just putting up a facade that there is, the, you know, we don't deny reality. We have regret because we see now what we didn't see then. Sometimes we have immediate regrets. We say something and it's immediately, oh, I regret saying that, or I immediately regret doing this. Sometimes it takes a long, long time, and you look back and you regret some of the things that have happened. So it can be immediate or it can be a long time. Um, I put it this way, that a lot of times what we do is we trade comfort or stability, future comfort or stability for momentary pleasure or joy or convenience. Um, we trade the peace, the comfort uh, that we could have had now. We've traded it for, you know, let's say spontaneity when we were younger, uh, impulse purchases, things like this. We regret some of the things in the past. I can look back um, 10, 15 years ago and regret spending so much money on late night appetizers at Applebee's when I could have been taking that, if you showed me how much I could have made by taking that same money instead of buying chicken wings, putting it into Google stocks, yeah, that'd be a clear example. But, you know, we regret looking back in the past and seeing things like this. On a more serious note, some of our choices in the past have left more serious consequences. Um, there have been relationships that we lose and we regret some of the things we've done. There's time that you can't get back and we regret how we spent our time sometimes. Um, and again, some of the choices we make have heavy consequences in our lives. And we can feel the weight of guilt when we look back with regret. We can feel even the ongoing shame associated with some things and in our lives of who we have become in sin with some of these things. And regret is powerful. This is something that can paralyze us even uh, 
keep us from making healthy decisions or going into relationships or things like this. This fear and this regret can paralyze us. But it can also be powerful in a positive way. Regret can change us. Regret can free us. Think about the story of the prodigal son and how he's eating from the food trough with the pigs and he regrets everything that happened and that regret changes him and it frees him to say, I'm going to go back to the father. So regret can be a powerful thing. We don't want to ignore it. It can change us. And I heard this from Paul Tripp. He's a pastor and writer. I heard this yesterday um, just on this point that a biblical faith never requires you to deny reality. That's what I just mentioned before. If, if you're denying reality, you may be able to achieve temporary peace, but you're not practicing biblical faith. So we don't deny reality. We go into the reality of regret in our life. And God has provided the word for this. God, we're not just fitting this into scripture. Lamentations 5 is all about regret. And so that's what we're looking at today. Let me just pray real quick before we get into the text. Father God, thank you for your presence here with us today. I pray that it would not be me preaching, but you, Holy Spirit, preaching through me, Jesus, that you would come and preach peace to us and um, give us your words. Give us the ears to hear and the hearts, Lord, to receive your word. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So let me find Lamentations 5, right after Jeremiah, right before Ezekiel. It's a small book. There it is. So I'm going to read this real quick for us. Jeremiah is writing Lamentations, and he says, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill. The boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men, their music, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies des desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. This is the word of the Lord. So you can see just by reading this whole passage, chapter 5, you can kind of deduce some of the things 
things that Israel had, that Jerusalem had, and found pride and stability in their relationship with God. First of all, they had a relationship with God. They had a covenant promise with God. They were affectionately loved by God. But look, in their relationship with God, you can tell from this chapter that they had an inheritance. They had a future. They had homes. They had families. They had mother and father and children. They had water and food and warmth. They had peace on all sides. They had righteousness and justice and faith. They had strength. They had comfort. They had prosperity. They had love. They had royalty, dignity, honor, joy. They had wisdom and respect. They had dancing. They had songs. They had health. They had wealth. They had beauty. All of these things you can read in this chapter they had because what he's doing is regretting how much they've lost. So just picture what a beautiful relationship they had with God. They had everything they could ever want and they had peace in everything. They had shalom in God's in relationship with God. They were the apple of God's eye. They were the, the object of his love. He loved them so much. They're his bride. And you could say this, that they were clothed, cleansed, and cared for in every way. That's going to be a theme today, is that they were clothed, they were cleansed, they were cared for. They had all these things, but then they were caught worshiping other gods. They were caught worshiping idols. And that's where all of this changed. Their idolatry was a spiritual adultery in their relationship with God. They turned their backs on God and they sought after these other more convenient or practical ways to get who knows what. Um, maybe more controllable uh, equation in their relationship. I don't know. But they went to idolatry. And God warned them many times about this. He warned them to turn back, to turn from idols, to turn to God, to come to me. He says in Jeremiah chapter 25, he says, do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. So that's like the precursor to what we see in Lamentations. Jeremiah is telling them, God is speaking through Jeremiah saying, turn from these idols, turn to God. And then he says, but you haven't. And then Lamentations we see is the demolition uh, of the restoration process that God is going to do with his people. But we're looking at the whole demolition process in Lamentations. So he's looking back with regret over what they've lost. And there's guilt in these uh, words. And there's shame in these words. So take a look at a few examples of where we see the guilt and the responsibility for sin coming out in these passages. From what we just read in chapter 5, verse 16 shows us that um, he says, woe to us for we have sinned. So Jeremiah is facing the guilt. He says, woe to us for we have sinned. If you go back and look at chapter one, this whole book faces the responsibility of guilt. When he says in uh, verse eight, Jerusalem sinned grievously and therefore these things happened. He says in verse 22, that you're dealing with me because of all my transgressions. So he's taking responsibility for the guilt, facing the guilt, but then we see shame. So what's the difference between guilt and shame? I really picture that guilt is feeling um, the consequences 
or the weight of what we've done in sin, and shame is facing what we've become in sin. It's more of a perspective that's, um, well, guilt might be this internal perspective, the weight on our heart of conviction, whereas shame is kind of a relational thing. It's who I am now in relation to someone else, um, even to God, feeling shame, feeling disconnected, feeling... um, yeah, that, that's that relational perspective. So here's the way Jeremiah puts it. In chapter 5, before he says, woe to us for we have sinned, he says, the crown has fallen from our head. This gives us a picture to imagine of what that looks like for your crown to fall from your head. That's a picture of shame associated with woe to us for we have sinned. So the guilt brings shame that our crown, our beauty, our royalty has fallen among other people and in the perspective of other people. Our relationship here in the world, our crown has fallen. Um, but even a more vivid picture we can see in chapter 1. If you look at verse 8 and 9, Jeremiah says that Jerusalem sinned grievously. That's what they've done. And then here, therefore, what she's become. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future, therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. So this is the shame that Jeremiah is speaking about, that because Jerusalem sinned, therefore Israel has become, Jerusalem has become really a naked, filthy, unclean, are the words that he uses to describe this. And it's, it can be shocking to think, why would the Bible use such vivid, even graphic example um, of what's going on here, but it, it really conveys to us the depth and the weight of, and the reality of sin. The Bible doesn't shy away from the ugliness, the ugly truth of sin, and, and just what that looks like on a human level to face the consequences of sin in the shame that we bear naked and filthy and unclean. I think of my friend Scott, um, just an example. He told me this week, um, he went downtown with a friend to an appointment they had, and he was hanging out downtown in a park, and he told me this story when he got home, just was on his mind, um, how he was sitting in that park, and then this this woman came into the park, and she was strung out on drugs. She was not properly dressed, and she was not in her right mind. She started stripping, and it was just not anything uh, pleasant. It was really offensive. It was bothersome. It was really hard to see. Um, Scott took his jacket, and he put his jacket over this woman and called the police for help. And, you know, when the police came, he comes out of his car, and he's got his baton. And Scott says, no, she needs help. She's not a threat. Um, But, guys, this is it's almost hard to recount the story and and that Scott lived um, to see this. But guys, I want to just draw the parallel of what we see in Scripture when Jeremiah describes Jerusalem as naked and filthy and unclean. We don't want to go there. We don't want to see that, you know? But the Bible deals with it, and it shows us the full weight of how God sees our sin. He shows us this. And then what does this look like to those who are passing by? 
he writes in Lamentations 2, all who pass along the way clap their hands at you. Imagine this, seeing someone in need, and they clap their hands at you, they hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. They say, is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, we've swallowed her up. This is the day we longed for. Now we see it. This is God's bride that we're picturing. That grotesque picture of someone at a rock bottom situation is God's bride. That's the object of his affectionate love. And Jeremiah is saying she's at her rock bottom. She has nothing to cover her shame. And everyone who passes by just wags their head and insults her. These are vivid poetic examples of our spiritual poverty and sin and in guilt and in shame. This is our reality too. It's not pretty to look at, but we have grace just by the fact that God does look at it because this is our reality. How did this all start? Where did this begin? If you look back at the, the beginning of the Bible, it started there in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, they lived in the presence of God in, in the Garden of Eden, naked and unashamed. Everything was great. And then uh, Satan came in and he brought this lie and uh, deceived Eve and deceived Adam. And they ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And guilt entered the scene on that day. Sin entered the scene on that day back there. And with it, guilt and shame came into our lives. Romans 3.23 says that we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And then Paul later says in Romans that sin came into the world through that one man and that death came through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is our reality now. He says that because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And he says that one trespass led to condemnation for all men. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So even though sin entered the world on that day, it continues with us today. We are in the same situation as this. It's a real problem. And one, one writer puts it this way, that if we're going to survive in the wilderness outside of Eden, then we need to learn to deal with both guilt and shame. This is our existence outside the Garden of Eden. We need to deal with the guilt and the shame that we bear in sin. And so we're going to look at what that means um, and, and what's God's posture towards our guilt and towards our shame as we look at this theme of naked, filthy, and unclean um, and how that has kind of a, a biblical survey of, those, of this theme with us. So it started, like I said, in Genesis, uh, the beginning of the Bible, and we can see in chapter 2, chapter 2 describes Adam and Eve as being naked and unashamed. So here, we're, we're looking at this way that Jeremiah describes um, that Jerusalem is, is exposed in her sin, naked. This started all the way back in the Garden of Eden, but they were naked and unashamed. But then if you go the next chapter to chapter 3, after sin came into the world, all of a sudden, this is a big deal now. It says they knew they were naked. After sin came into the world, they knew they were naked. And what they did is they tried to sew fig leaves together to hide themselves. And then it says that the man and his wife hid themselves. 
from the presence of the Lord among the trees. And then when God says, Adam, where are you? Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So we see that this is a problem that began all the way back in Genesis. But then look how this continues. Even to the end, from the beginning of time to the end of time, Jesus speaks to the church in Revelations 3, 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. So this is a, portra a portrait of our sin from the beginning to the end. Our nakedness is exposed in sin. That's who we are. And uh, we try to hide, just like Adam and Eve did. We try to cover our shame, and we try to cover our guilt in different ways. But Hebrews 4.13 says that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees us all. There's nothing we can hide from him. So this is the reality of our relationship with God in sin. We are exposed before him. The Bible also describes um, how we try to also clean up ourselves. We try to hide ourselves. We try to clean ourselves up, don't we? But Isaiah 64 says that we've all become like one who is unclean. Isaiah 64 says we're all unclean. It's like there's no vaccine passport where you can get in, you can get out. No, you all are disqualified. You're all unclean. You can't come in is basically, but then we try to clean ourselves up. He says in that verse, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We try to clean ourselves up, but we're just cleaning ourselves up with a polluted garment. It's like, can you imagine if I had COVID and I coughed up spit on your sleeve, that would be just, alarms would be going off, that'd be the most offensive thing. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, let me, I don't have any, napkins, uh, let me take my mask and I'll clean it off for you. That's what this is like. We're trying to clean up the mess we made with a worse mess. It does not work. It's, it's just mind-bending to think about that. That's what it should do. That's what we do in sin. We try to clean ourselves up, but we, when we try to clean ourselves up with our good deeds, it's just pathetic. It's just making the situation worse. And then we're unclean. Um, the Bible describes us as naked, filthy, unclean um, in sin. So just one illustration on this point um, I find from the prophet Zechariah when he's describing our position before God. Um, he has this vision uh, from God of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus. And he has Satan standing right there at his right hand to accuse him. In Zechariah chapter 3, it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And it says in verse 3, that Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. So here's the high priest who's supposed to represent God's people and go before God completely clean. And he's standing before God dressed in filthy garments. He is unable to advocate for himself because he's standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan is right there pointing to accuse him. He has no grounds to advocate for himself. This is a little bit of the picture of who we are in sin. We, we used to be clothed and cleansed and cared for and now we've become naked, filthy, and unclean. 
we cannot even advocate for ourselves. So this, this brings us to regret. This brings us to that powerful moment where we face the rock bottom truth of our situation. That there have been times in our lives where we've traded a life with God for a moment with some other idol, some other thing that can give me value, some other thing that's gonna give me worth or purpose or identity or something that's gonna serve me and give me what I'm looking for. We've all done this. We've all traded that life with God for a moment with sin. And Jeremiah doesn't shy away from the myriad of emotions that we face in this this relationship with God where we have turned our backs on him. He uses words like disgrace, God being withdrawn, dishonor, scorned, disowned, despised, distance, rejection. He says, a comforter is far from me in verse 16, chapter 1. He says, what can I say to you? What can I compare to you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you? Jeremiah's like, what can I even say to comfort you in this? Because your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? That's how Jeremiah looks at Israel and says, who can heal you? You are beyond repair. Your ruin is so great. You are beyond repair. Have you ever felt like you are beyond repair? like you've been disowned or distanced or scorned from God? If so, then you can relate, like me, to these words that Jeremiah speaks for us. Maybe you can relate to this final plea that Jeremiah comes in uh, chapter 5. At the end of his book, his final plea, he says, why do you forget us forever? He has this rhetorical question why do you forsake us for so many days? And he says, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. He's just listed out all the things that they've lost. And he says, renew us. Renew our days as of old. Give us back everything we lost, please. But he says, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. That was the question for Jeremiah. That was the question for Israel that they were all wondering as they were being carried off, carried away to Babylon, leaving their city, leaving everything they had. Has God rejected us? Has he rejected us? Is he still angry with us? This is his question. What's God's posture? Is he sitting up there or back turned, scowling down? What's his posture towards our guilt? What's his posture towards our shame? Is God done with Israel? You know, taking today's standards of cancel culture, God would have rightly just disowned them completely. You know, today it's like if you're going for a job position and they look 10 years back at your Twitter and see, oh, you wrote this thing that was offensive 10 years ago. Well, sorry, you, you, we can't hire you. You know, God, God could look back at our lives and say, no, because of that thing you did 10 years ago, sorry, you traded it. It's done. We can wonder, is this God's posture towards our sin? Let's take a look at what God's word has to say. 
What's God's posture towards our guilt? Isaiah, some of the prophets have spoken about God's posture towards our guilt, and even the New Testament writers have written about God's posture towards our guilt. So let's go to God's word to see what he has to say about your guilt. Isaiah says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isn't that amazing? That's God's posture towards your sin. That God says, come to me and I will make your sins white as snow. Psalm 103 is amazing to just read the whole thing through. It's just dripping with good news. But there are some particular verses here I want to point out. Starting with verse 8. Because it's not about who we are. It's all up to who God is. And here's who God is. The Lord is merciful and gracious. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor, let, nor will he keep his anger forever. That's Jeremiah's question. God, are you going to be angry forever? Psalm 103 says he will not be angry forever. He does not deal with us according to our sin nor repay us according to our iniquity. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's who God is. Steadfast in love. He is unchanging. Even though we are changing and we are finite, his character never changes. That's who he is no matter what. And then if we look to the New Testament, we see just the same Colossians. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2 that God has forgiven all our trespasses. How has he done that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then Romans 3, he says that you are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because guess what? Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. The sins that we're seeing in lamentations, God passed over those with forbearance until the appointed time where he laid those sins on Jesus. So the hope for lamentations was the future Messiah who would come and we know who that is now in Christ. We saw how sin entered the world in Genesis and that Paul describes in Romans 5 how through that one man, sin came to all of us. Well, Paul didn't just end there. In, in Romans 5, he says, yes, sin came through one man, but through one man, Jesus, came righteousness to all who turn to Christ, who trust in him. So Christians, our guilt is dealt with entirely when we were made right with God through trust in Jesus. Our guilt is resolved. Our record of debt is canceled. But shame, 
Shame can still haunt us long after we deal with our guilt. We must must confront both guilt and shame with the gospel of grace. So what's God's posture towards our shame? That we are, because of what we've done, what we've become, that's the difference between guilt and, and shame, what we've become. Now, what, now that guilt is taken care of, how is our shame taken care of? What we've become. Take a look at God's posture towards shame. I mentioned in Genesis 3 how um, Adam and Eve, they sinned, and so they started to hide themselves from God. Well, what's God's posture towards Adam and Eve? We see in, chapter, in verse 9, God comes to them, and he calls to them, and he says, Adam, where are you? That's God's posture towards our shame, is that he doesn't just, he could have walked away from Adam and Eve completely, but he came to them, and he called to them, and then in verse 21, he clothed them. It says that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. That's God's posture towards your shame. They were naked and ashamed, and he came to them, and he clothed them. We are naked, filthy, and unclean, but God deals with this too by cleansing us. Ezekiel, the the very next book after Lamentations, the prophet Ezekiel says that they shall not defile themselves anymore with idols, with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they've sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That's God's posture towards us. He cleanses us, and he says, I will save you. And Paul writes to Titus and says that Jesus gave himself to redeem us and purify for himself a people for his own possession. Purified, cleansed. That's his posture towards us. And then that final um, example that I pulled from Zechariah of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord dressed in filthy garments. How does God deal with us when we are unclean? Here's what Jesus says to Satan in that passage. He says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. Wow. Jesus removes our iniquity, removes our filthy garments, and clothes us with pure vestments and a clean turban. Um, And this... This is the picture. Jesus, we will see him do this again. Just like Zacharias saw in a vision, Jesus cleanse and and change uh, Joshua the high priest. While John one day would have a vision of Revelation in chapter 7, and he sees this. He says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. That's our future hope. Just like Jesus did that for Joshua, he will do that for us with Satan 
standing there at the ready, pointing to accuse us for all the naked and shame, the guilt and shame that we have. Jesus says, nope, I have plucked him from the fire. I will remove his filthy garments and put on white robes. That's the hope that we have. That's God's posture towards our guilt and towards our shame. So now, if this is who God is to us, that he is not angry, that he is not silent towards you, he has spoken outspokenly out loud his love for you on the cross, then then who are we? And how do we respond? That's our application today is who are we and how do we respond? Um, our, our Pastor Dwight, in, he, in his notes on this passage, he put it this way, that God never regrets laying down his life so that you could be brought into the kingdom of God. Just keep that with you as a reminder. God never regrets saving you. God never regrets laying down his life for you. So then, it's all about who we are and how we respond to him is not out of guilt and shame, but it's out of grace and glory. It's not out of guilt and shame, it's out of grace and glory now. So this changes our relationship with God. We can worship God out of grace and out of glory, not out of guilt and shame. We don't have to hide, we don't have to cover up, we get to come to him. We get to run to him, we get to praise him with nothing to hide. He knows our regrets. He knows our guilt. He knows our shame. But we get to come to him and worship him. This also changes our mission, our relationship with the world, with our neighbors. Now, God sends us out to people, your neighbors, some of your friends, your family, your colleagues who have so much guilt and so much shame and so much regret. We get to go to them and tell the story of a God who takes regret and exploits it for rejoicing, for our rejoice. What kind of God is there like that that takes our regrets and uses it for rejoicing? That's what God does. And we do it in our love for one another. Out of our love for one another, what John was saying at the beginning that we have to dig in, we have to stand with each other through hard times. We have to have that love for one another. Like Jesus got down and he cleaned his disciples' feet. Okay, he cleanses our filth. And he says, you go and do the same. He says, this is an example for you. We have been clothed, cleansed, and cared for so that we can clothe and cleanse and care for one another. This is our posture towards one another. How to love each other. Like that story I told you with uh, Scott going downtown, the woman in need, and that policeman coming out with his baton, and he says, no, she needs help, not, not a, she's not a threat. Well, sometimes we can walk around like we've got this baton of God's law, and we think that's what's going to make people right, when what they need is a blanket for their shame. They need to be cleansed and cared for. And so let's take this good news of the gospel and, and, and care for one another through this. So let me just, because I read um, Lamentations 5 and we saw all the, the things that Israel had lost 
because of sin and because of their guilt and shame. I want to just reread this a little bit and see how God responds to all the things that they have lost, that they're begging for to be restored, and see how God has restored all these things in Christ. Isaiah 5, uh, Lamentations 5 says, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. Yet we have now, we see in Christ, an inheritance that is imperishable, a kingdom that is unshakable, that cannot be taken away. Jeremiah says, We have become orphans, fatherless, and mothers are like widows. In the gospel, we see that we have been adopted. We are not orphans, we've been adopted. And we have even, we can come to God as our Father. Jesus taught his disciples for the first time that you can call on God and pray to him as our Father. He's not just the Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's your Father. We are not orphans. We have a Father in heaven. He says, Jeremiah says that we are weary, we are given no rest. Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. Jeremiah says that our fathers sinned and are no more and we bear their iniquities. Well, we can look back at Jesus' righteousness and say we've inherited his righteousness. Even though we inherited sin from Adam, we inherited righteousness from Jesus. We see in the New Testament, in the gospel, that women and men are honored and cared for, and that old women instruct younger women and older men instruct younger men. Um, that we see in Jeremiah, he describes that the old men and the young men, the old women and the young women are, are, are destroyed. Um, Jeremiah says that the joy of the Lord has ceased and our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. In the gospel, we see that our mourning is turned into dancing and that the crown of steadfast love and mercy is put on our head. And Jeremiah says that you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. He says, restore us unless you've utterly rejected us. So we know today he has not utterly rejected us. In the gospel, he has restored his, the object of his love to his own heart. He has sent the bridegroom to earth to atone for our sins so that we can, again, be the bride of his love. So let's go in this good news today um, and let me pray for us now. Father God, thank you for this amazing good news that you have um, saved us from the consequences of our sin, that even though we have sinned and we've brought so much guilt and shame into our lives, we regret, but you... Lord, can use that regret in our lives not to paralyze us, not to shame us, but to change us. Because you've put that on to your own son on the cross. So Jesus, help us by your Holy Spirit um, to respond today and this week with greater love for you and greater love for one another, greater love for the people who are hurting in this world. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.